0: Hello everybody, it's Dom, and I hope you're all having an amazing week so far. Um, And of course, I wanna remind you that you are a rather bloody amazing human. Don't forget that, don't ever doubt that, because here at Horror House, we love you, we appreciate you, you're awesome. So this week's bonus episode is a little bit different. As we weren't able to record together, um, I reached out to some friends of ours and some friends of the podcast who very, very kindly sent us an episode for us to feed Drop. And I'm super, super stoked to say that this week's bonus set is courtesy of the devilishly dashing duo from Spoilers of Horror, Stephen and Leo. They have an amazing show. It's one of my absolute favorites um, and they have been on our show a few times. And this is just a wee little taster of the shenanigans that occur over at Spoils of Horror. And if you enjoy uh, a certain horror movie with, I don't know, someone, someone, his name might be Freddy, then you're in for a treat for this episode, trust me. Um, But that's enough of my ramble. Please sit back and enjoy hanging out with Steven and Leo today as they take over the Horror House feed and be sure to show their show, to show their show. That's a bit of a tongue twister. I've fucked up this intro. Sorry, Stephen and Leo. Um, Be sure to show their show <laughs> some love too, because they deserve it. They're awesome. But for now, boys, the floor is yours. Hey, Leo. Hello, Stephen.
1: I don't know if you've been following horror news recently, but information has come out about the upcoming hellraiser series that i believe is going to be on hulu which means Uh, neither of us will watch it that's true (laughs) no offense hulu wink but they have told us about the rating which is r Mm -hmm. and they have told us what that r rating means so they've said it's for gore for swearing and for graphic nudity so i have a question for you what do you think graphic nudity is versus just general nudity
2: Sketches. It's a bunch of artists doing graphic novels, going in and putting their artwork up and they're doing 3D modeling around it. (laughs) I think Pinhead (laughs) I think Pinhead bends over and shows us the eye of Mordor. Do you think his butthole has pins in it too? Maybe that's why he's so cranky. (laughs) Right. We see just how many pinholes are in his butthole. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> graphic nudity. Interesting. I know. Um, I think the Cenobites have three tits. I
2: don't think I've heard that expression before. It just means they show a dick. That's I, what it means. I mean, honestly, that's probably what it is. All the women you want, all frontal nudity, fine. As soon as there's a dick, we have a new, new rating.
1: I hope one of those Cenobites has a dick on their head.
2: <laughs> He's walking around like a unicorn with a floppy dildo. <laughs> He's using it to find his victims. All of his fingers are dildos. <laughs> Little peni.
1: All right, everybody, welcome to this very graphic (laughs) podcast. This is Spoils of Horror. My name is Steven. I am Leo. And this is episode number 44 A Nightmare on Elm Street, part three Dream Warriors.
0: What an excellent day for an exorcism.
1: in our last episode. There's no reason to ask you why you picked this movie. Mm. So I will ask you, why do you love this movie?
2: You know, the Elm Street franchise to me is every bit as much as the Friday the 13th franchise to you or the Halloween franchise to you. This was what I grew up with. Freddy Krueger was my guy. He was my horror icon. And I think it was because he was the only horror icon who got to be a public idol He was on MTV Music Awards, and he was hosting events, and he was a character. And I understand his background, his history, the child murder molesting thing and all that was grotesque. I'm not obviously saying that that's cool. But the way Robert Englund played him really struck a chord amongst all the other characters. And his first film, of course, was was deadly cool. Nobody had done a slasher like that. Before And delved into the dream stuff, which I'm always fascinated by the human mind and psychology and dreams and all that anyway. So everything gelled together for me around Freddy Krueger at an impressionable time of my horror life growing up. This film, for me, was the quintessential Freddy Krueger. He still had that terrifying dream demon from the first film and was just developing his dark humor that would later go on into a very cartoonish form But in this movie, it worked. It was just dark enough, and it was just funny enough. And everything came together to make what I consider the perfect version of Freddy Krueger. I agree with everything you said. It's not just that
1: you and I share a love for this film, but it is actually also a quintessential part of my Mm -hmm. horror diet Mm -hmm. when I was young. I loved Freddy Krueger but not the way I loved Friday the 13th movies or Halloween Mm -hmm. movies. So this is one of the few times where a movie that played a role in your upbringing as a horror addict also is a big part of my horror journey. I'm sure that's true for most people as well.
2: So absolutely.
1: You want to do it? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Hell yeah. We open on a young girl named Kristen making a paper mache dollhouse. She's starting to fall asleep and decides to blast rock music eat a spoonful of coffee grounds with a Diet Coke chaser to stay awake. Her mother's trying to hook up with a guy in the other room and storms in to tell Kristen to keep the noise down and go to bed. Kristen begins to dream of a derelict house resembling her papier-mâché art project. She stands in front of it watching while kids jump rope, singing One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Kristen follows a little girl on a tricycle into the basement of the house. Everything is quiet until Kristen reaches for the girl. Then pipes shoot steam and flames in the furnace ignite, revealing skulls inside. The little girl says softly, ''Freddy's home.'' Kristen runs down the hallway, carrying the little girl, being chased by Freddy Krueger. After some scares, she sees the child in her arms is now a skeleton. She screams and wakes up in her bed, terrified and exhausted. She goes to the bathroom to wash her face, and suddenly one faucet handle grabs her hand while the other grows knives like a Freddy glove. It's clearly still a dream. The clawed hand rises, slashes at Kristen, blood splatters across the mirror, reflecting Freddy's face. Kristen's mom walks into the bathroom after hearing screams to see her daughter's wrists have been slashed, and she's holding a razor. It looks like she tried to kill herself. Kristen passes out. Sometimes when a movie comes out, a trend
1: will form from it eating a certain food, going to a certain place, participating in a certain activity will become really popular because of the way it's used in a movie. Think of how archery became really popular after Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Do you think that paper mache building became popular after how (laughs) fucking badass it looks in the beginning of this movie?
2: (laughs) I think this is probably the most rock and roll paper mache I've ever seen in my life.
1: There was somebody... That was like a metal head that was like, finally, <laughs> <laughs> put on Master of Puppets and just started fucking
2: rocking out to it. Just dying to get his little ceramic unicorns put in place and not be made fun of. <laughs> He's like suicide and <laughs> turn to the living dead. This shit is serious. This is a statement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My devil paper mache is gonna fucking rock. <laughs>
2: As I've mentioned before in the podcast, a Freddy Krueger film is done best when you don't know whether the character is awake or asleep. And this movie captures it perfectly. There are many moments, including this opening scene and much more later on, where you genuinely don't know whether they're asleep or awake until some shit goes weird.
1: In later movies, this is going to become laughably bad. Correct where the characters will clearly doze off and then they'll look around and it's like sunlight out mm-hmm. and there's practically a deer looking they're at on them. on the beach. whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so obvious that they're asleep. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. This movie nails it. Mm. There's one part where they're clearly asleep, but it wants you to think that they're awake. Yeah. That doesn't
2: quite work. They didn't get them all right. But, but
1: overall. For the most part, mm. this opening where she is dozing off and eating coffee grounds. Who the fuck eats coffee grounds? (laughs) A big spoonful of Maxwell House to stay awake. Jesus Christ, it's the grinding of it going down your throat (laughs) that keeps you awake. But this and the scene in the bathroom, Mm.
2: nail it. It's the scene in the bathroom that really exemplifies how well they do this, in my opinion. They're both great. It looked like she just woke the fuck up from a terrifying dream until Freddy attacked her in the bathroom. And the movie does that throughout, in a way, well, you genuinely have no fucking clue which reality you're in. One thing I've realized when you're Freddy Krueger
1: is in order to make these dream sequences work, you really have to be a master of choreography. You got to put all the right <laughs> pieces together. It's true. Now, one of the things I always admire about this script versus the scripts in the other ones is that the pomp and circumstance that Freddy Krueger puts these characters through before he kills them mm-hmm. actually makes a lot of sense. Yes. Because in the first movie, his power is based on fear. They never reference that in this third movie, Mm -hmm. but the third movie and the first movie are so interconnected. Mm -hmm. To me, it just plays out that
2: the more he builds up their fear, the more power he gets before he kills them. It's one of the things I love about this character as a killer. He gets in your head and fucks with you. He finds what you're afraid of. Uses it against you to build that fear and therefore, as you say, build his power and then kill you. It's gonna become campy as shit. It will. They make it cartoony. But for this, it works
1: because you can start to ask yourself, why doesn't he just kill them? It's because the pomp and circumstance mm. has to be there so that these characters feel the fear. He has to build that. But holy fucking shit, you gotta nail it. If Kristen walks after that little girl and that little girl on the tricycle rides away and accidentally rides into that wall, it fucking <laughs> looks stupid. <laughs>
2: oh. uh, never mind, excuse me.
1: Well, and there's also things you can't show, too, <laughs> because it can't show the little girl ride around the corner. Kristen walks after the little girl and sees the stairs going down into the boiler room, mm-hmm. goes down to the boiler room, and then the little girl's down there. Yeah. It can't show what happens in between, which is the little girl fucking crash down this clunk, <laughs> clunk, 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 clunk. Do you
2: think she tried to ride the bike down and fell head over heels, or did she try and carry it down like kids do
1: and <laughs> just make a lot of noise? That looks way more awkward. <laughs> Picking it up, hitting the
2: sides, struggling at the door because she can't figure out how to get it through the doorway.
1: I like the idea of her going down and falling like Nordberg and Naked Gun. <laughs> <laughs> And then just flipping at the end like a bowling pin.
2: I love that thought. That's that, That's canon now.
1: You said something in the Friday the 13th episode that was very fair, mm. which you said, I love this movie, so don't take it the wrong way if mm-hmm. I give this movie some shit. Now it's going to be in reverse.
2: <laughs> I expected it as much. I adore this movie, <laughs>
1: but I'm going to give it a little bit of shit. Kristen would have been better served making one small change to how she runs away from him. What would have helped her... If she had dropped the porcelain doll that that little girl quickly became, because it's so clear as she's running through these corners, that kid is fake as shit. I wish that little kid's head
2: had fallen off. I give it a little pass that this kid looked so fucking fake when she's running around when Nancy's mom at the end of the first film looks so fucking fake going through the door at the end. I'm going to bring that up again later in this episode. It's tradition at this point that one doll gets to be used.
1: And to be fair, that little (laughs) girl becomes a skeleton. I like that part a lot. That was
2: cool. That was a very cool reveal.
1: I think that that's great. But holy shit, does it look like a piece of wood with shoes on it. (laughs) But again, I'm just giving this movie a little shit because I love this opening. This opening is so beautiful.
2: It makes Freddy scary. That's something that the later films really fell to the side on. The first film, he was fucking terrifying. Second film is what it is. Everything after this, he just became a lampoon of who he was. He was it was more about the dark humor and the bad jokes than it was about he's actually scary. And they haven't leaned on the strengths of Freddy Krueger in the later
1: movies mm-hmm. like they do in the earlier movies. Who are our horror icons? Mm-hmm. Leatherface, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees chucky other than chucky because he's a doll the other three are pretty similar the setting is different one of them uses a
2: chainsaw they each use a different weapon but they're all basically the same hulking unstoppable thing
1: well and again the setting is different one's Mm -hmm. a camp one's like suburbia and one is texas correct this killer is fundamentally different Mm. because this character has personality, which Chucky has too, but has this dream world. Mm -hmm. And the dream world allows for so many different set pieces Mm -hmm. and so many different kills and so many different ways of relating to these characters. Mm -hmm. In a Jason movie, you're never going to get a scene where the faucet turns into a Freddy hand and slashes at Kristen, which happens in the bathroom, which actually looks great.
2: And I agree with you completely. One of the things I love about this character and his world of killing is that it's versatile. Anything can happen in a dream. We all know this. Dreams are weird and unpredictable and don't make a lot of sense. You can dream about a place you lived in in your past, and it's an amalgamation of three different houses you used to live in, but it makes sense to you in your head because you were in all those places at one time or another. Dreams are like that. And being able to manipulate that landscape and work with it in a way to be a slasher killer is fucking phenomenal. And this is one of the movies that really gets how to pull it all together. At Weston Hill Psychiatric Hospital, Dr. Gordon and an orderly named Max talk about a string of local teenage suicides before checking in with the patients. An alarm sounds and they run to a nearby examination room where newly admitted patient Kristen fights off an orderly trying to sedate her. She is eventually calmed down by Nancy Thompson, a therapist specializing in nightmares and our hero from the first film. Nancy is introduced to the patients and, through conversations with Gordon and the teens, eventually gains everyone's trust. Later that night, Kristen falls asleep and dreams she's back at the derelict Elm Street house. As she explores the rooms, Kruger bursts through the floor as a giant snake and begins to devour her. Kristen screams, and whirls away, Nancy hears her. Nancy is pulled into Kristen's dream. She grabs a piece of glass and stabs Freddy in the eye, coming face-to-face face with the dream demon again for the first time. The girls wake up, and Kristen tells Nancy about her strange ability to pull others into her dreams. Nancy joins a group therapy session later that day, and we meet most of the cast. There's Jennifer, a wannabe actress. Will, a D&D nerd in a wheelchair. Joey, a mute kid crushing on one of the nurses. Taryn, a tough girl from Juvenile Hall. Philip, a puppeteer. And Kincaid, a guy dealing with anger management issues. They're all dreaming of a burnt guy in a fedora hat, but the adults write this off as moral conflicts about sexuality. Later, Nancy recommends to Gordon that the kids take hypnosil, an experimental drug which suppresses dreams, but he refuses. It's lights out at the hospital, and Philip dreams. Freddy Krueger arrives, slashing Philip's arms and legs, exposing his veins, pulling them from his body like the strings of a puppet. Freddy leads him down the hallway. To the waking world, it looks like Philip is sleepwalking. Acting as a puppeteer, Freddy guides Philip towards a tower, and despite the cries of his friends from below, the veiny strings are cut and he falls to his death. It seems like a suicide to those who are awake, and the adults write it off as just that.
1: The papier-mâché house is going to show up a couple times here. It acts as a nice clue for Nancy to figure out what's going on, because when Nancy sees the papier-mâché house... She realizes that Kristen and her
2: are connected, that Kristen is dreaming of the house that she grew up in. And that's the key to this. She actually makes reference to it in the film. I grew up in this house, and it's the standard Freddy house that we've all come to know and love. If I made that, it would look like dog shit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an artistic guy, and I don't think I could do
1: it that well. When I was in high school, I took a shop class where we had to build something. Mm. And we had a lot of different options. I was very convinced that I was going to build a cabinet. (laughs) And that cabinet, none of it was straight. The door didn't close. There were giant gaps between the pieces of wood. You wouldn't put anything in there. You wouldn't put something you were embarrassed for people to find. You wouldn't put something you wanted people to see in there. If Freddy Krueger had a choice of haunting something that I built, he would move on to someone else. (laughs) It's too embarrassing. My parents still have this cabinet that I built to laugh at me.
2: That's funny as fuck. (laughs) I like that they kept it all these years just to rub it in your face how bad it was.
1: But I do love some of the imagery in this part. I love the tricycle melting
2: when Kristen has one of her dreams. They do such a great job on the dream landscape. The house looks amazing. What we saw from Nancy living in a nice suburbia house in the beginning of the first movie now is just this run-down, completely derelict, black mold, boards on the windows, fucked up house. And it looks like a nightmare on its own, like the sort of thing kids would stay away from in the neighborhood. Well, and that contrast is so great.
1: They play with these ideas of the horrors of suburbia. It's not as deeply explored in this movie, mm-hmm. but with those other ones, you always have this story of the parents mm-hmm. who burned Kruger alive. Yeah. Whether he deserved it or not. Mom it's a stain it. that hangs. Yeah, exactly. Like in the first movie, you know, there's there's this great imagery of Nancy being stuck in her house with mm-hmm. bars on the windows, which mm-hmm. to me is such a great, like suburban image. Yes. This movie plays with it a little bit because it's a different setting, so it's harder, but they play with it in Kristen's mom. I don't think it's a mistake that Kristen's mom is distant, uninterested, rich, and there's just a nice little aside where her and Nancy are talking about Kristen, and in order for Nancy to be able to get Kristen's suitcase, what does the mom do? She calls, she for, calls the for the help.
2: Yeah. And then she gets pissed off when the help won't reply. And she's very frustrated with Nancy wanting to go up and get Kristen's things at all because Kristen is just another trinket she has on her luxury belt. She's not really that invested.
1: There's a part where they show a shot of Kristen's mom and there's a bunch of pictures behind her. And I'm convinced those are all pictures of Kristen's mom.
2: I'm sure that is her and her youth and whatnot. It's not <laughs> actually of her daughter. It's right. all the narcissistic bullshit.
1: Right. But this is a theme that these nightmare movies weave in and out of. I don't think it's a throwaway character detail that you have this rich mom that's kind of embarrassed of her crazy daughter, and that is a lot more interested in her dating and the various other things that are going on than her daughter's very real problems.
2: One thing that is a great theme in all of this, though, and I agree, is each of these, quote, troubled kids come from troubled homes. Sure, Their parents are not that loving, their parents are not that close. There's some sort of a problem. We don't delve into all of the parents' histories with and through these kids in this movie. They're just not great harmonious families that these kids come from, which creates problems. It creates mental health issues. It creates serious psychological damage. And that's the shit that Freddie plays on. And I think that was a large component in this film.
1: Well, and it's also like buttoned nicely Mm -hmm. by the relationship with Nancy and her father. Mm -hmm. And her bringing her father back was a nice touch. Absolutely.
2: Nancy returning to this film was brilliant. It gave us another look at her and where she's come as a character arc. It gave her an opportunity. Now we go through the hallways. She's trying to find an office and this orderly Max, or should I say Morpheus, is... A young Lawrence Fishburne. (laughs) He is walking around introducing her to the kids, finding her a place to stay and all that sort of stuff. And in his pocket is a little radio... That if you listen to what it's saying, it's talking about teenage suicides on the rise throughout the town of Springwood, which is a small detail. This movie does a really good job of not hammering the points home, but giving you the information you need. So we don't have to go into the history of, oh, this is happening, that's happening. We just hear on the radio, suicides are on the rise, which means more and more kids throughout this town are being affected by what Freddie is doing. Shows how widespread it's not just in this hospital that he's fucking with these kids. And his evil and his reach is growing farther just as his strength is.
1: Oh yeah, it's a very tight script. But just to give our listeners a little bit of backstory on how this show works, sometimes we edit little mistakes out. And I just wanna call you out, Leo, that when you said Springwood, you accidentally said Springfield Why and we had you to cut it. Edit that out. Why
2: won't you let me get rid <laughs> of it? Because
1: I love the idea that there's mass suicides in Springfield <laughs> with the Simpsons. Moe is
2: dead. Lisa Simpson dead. Lisa's (laughs) been six for 35 years. If that's not going to make you want to commit suicide, I don't know what will. (laughs) I'd say a poo, but he got canceled. Thank you. Come again.
1: After Nancy's been shown around, we go to the group therapy room. And this is where we get to really meet all of the kids. Mm. We also get to meet Gordon a little bit more in this. Gordon very clearly cares about the kids, which is a detail that I really like. There's going to be some nice touches with his character later on that we'll get to. I do have one issue with this scene. The phrase that he says when he walks into the room every single time
2: that there's group therapy, when he says, straight talk only in this room, that shit's got to go. I'm sitting here the entire time I'm putting the script together going, he's going to land on this.
1: (laughs) He might as well walk in, turn a chair around and put a hat on backwards.
2: (laughs) Hello fellow kids, today we're going to talk about nightmares.
1: He's going to do the Riker maneuver. (laughs) (laughs) One leg up. Yep, one leg up.
2: (laughs) Captain America, that shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well kids, if this doesn't connect me, how about I rap to you? But yeah. there's
2: another doctor here called Dr. Sims we should mention briefly because she's sort of the main She's the main antagonist for the kids. She's the hospital worker who thinks they're all full of shit, and they all should just be sedated and put away so that nobody can see them and they're not a problem anymore, doesn't want to deal with them. She's just a bitch.
1: I don't know if I would say she's a bitch. I think that she is just bought into the idea that these kids have a psychosis mm. and that this whole dream thing is bullshit. I love one of her lines where she says the dreams are guilt about overt sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy shit. Did, hearing that line, did that not take you back to... To like the 80s and the 90s oh yeah where you know everything
2: was being blamed on ev- sex drugs and rock and roll
1: absolutely where mm-hmm. everything was conservative and and mm-hmm. you know sex drugs and rock and roll were the bad guys and no. everything and we had to just keep fucking pushing forward and no, being no. awesome that's why it's so upsetting to me now that liberals
2: suck <laughs> because liberals we used to be awesome we used to fight back against that shit now i know it's and now, like, we're, now we're boring lame snowflakey crap i know It But
1: this takes me back to those days Mm -hmm. when, where the villain would come out and shake their finger and be like, oh, if you kids weren't having so much of the sex and Mm -hmm. smoking weed, then these (laughs) demons wouldn't have come out. To quote Kincaid,
2: oh great, my dick keeps killing me.
1: Oh, I fucking love Kincaid Is he not one of the best Horror heroes Like right up there With Nancy Right up there With Rocky And Reggie And like all those Horror heroes that you love Who doesn't fucking Love Kincaid I think
2: he's underrated In this film He's got a lot of Great one liners He's got big personality He's got strength <laughs> That's his superpower And all of this We'll get to it
1: who else can get away with calling Freddy Krueger a pussy? That's true, and it's
2: one of the best lines. Literally, Krueger, pussy! pussy. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's so great!
1: It made me smile every time.
2: <laughs> but obviously, he's the troublemaker in Sims' eyes. A lot of people's eyes. He gets thrown in what they call the quiet room, which is literally just a padded cell to put the kids away when they're being problems. The other kids, we go around the circle. We introduce them in the intro. This is a very clever way, in my opinion, of the film introducing them. Again, it's not just people running down a staircase bumping into each other. It's <laughs> like troll. Like troll. It's literally a spot that makes sense where you would introduce each other and. Well, they're it works. introducing themselves to Nancy. That's my point. Right. Yeah. It fit with the parameters that they've set of where they are. They're in this hospital. They're having therapy sessions. It works. It's not tacked on, it's not weirdly shoved into the film as a plot device like oh now we got to meet these people it speaks well to how well the script is written it also allows you to sympathize with these kids
1: mm-hmm. and one of the things i love about this frank Darabont script is that he knows exactly where your sympathies sh- should lie mm-hmm. i love nightmare on elm street 4 but my big problem with that movie is that's where the whole thrust of freddy krueger is the main character Started mm-hmm. this movie, Freddy Krueger isn't in a whole lot, and it's because it's a great script that understands this movie is about the kids, they're the ones you're supposed to sympathize with, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are the heroes, they're the ones that are compelling and interesting, and good stories are written about them, which is what makes it a horror because they die. So, when horrible things are happening to it, you feel it. Philip, this kid that you barely get to meet seems like a nice kid he's got Mm -hmm. this little hobby of doing puppets and things like that you feel his death yeah because the movie focuses on the kids Mm -hmm. and that's one thing i just adore about this script and because of that focus on the kids we get to see various scenes with these kids interacting so we get to see you know philip and kincaid are roommates and they Mm -hmm. have some interaction we get to see a bunch of the kids playing games together. There's There's a really good
2: scene with Will inviting Taryn to come in and play D&D, and she does it, and you know, you can look at her and you can see she's reluctantly doing it, but she's also kind of having fun and doesn't want to admit it because she's really cool. It's a really nice moment between the three kids. Well, they're not playing Dungeons & Dragons.
1: They're playing the Sam's Choice version of (laughs) Dungeons & Dragons, which is, I don't know if it's like Wizard's Quest or Barbarian's Ball or Sorcerer's Orgy or something like that.
2: They couldn't get the rights, so they had to come up with some generic...
1: The rules on this game make no sense. They're like the Strip Monopoly game in Uh 513th. Uh They just Uh randomly roll a die, (laughs) and then whatever they said was going to happen just happens. That's
2: it. I was going to compare this to the Strip Monopoly as well, for the reasons you mentioned. It doesn't make sense. The rules don't seem to apply, and everyone there looks like they're kind of interested, but the good stuff hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Yeah, they... Literally
1: say something like, Oh, this wizard is going to kill you. What do you do? And she just soft rolls the dice. <laughs> I think it was a six-sided die as well. It wasn't even it, I, Yes, I think it was like a like a die that you would use in, like, Sorry. And then whatever whatever they roll, he just looks at the number and goes, Okay, it happened.
2: Uh-huh. I don't know that these people have played D&D they, much. The creature this... crawled out of the bog now that you rolled a three. What do you do? I fucking go to bed. I'm done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Where's the 25 dice and the debating back and forth as to what you can or can't do?
2: Magic missile.
1: Magic missile. <laughs> My elf has gray eyes. <laughs> ha! If you want to understand that reference, look up Dr. Demento D&D. <laughs> yes. But let's go to Philip's death.
2: Oh, my God. Now, I know a lot of people talk a lot about this death, and rightfully so. This was fucking brutal. When I was a kid, my older brother tried to prevent me from watching one of the kills happen in the first Elm Street movie because he thought it would be too graphic for me. Now, later on, I came back to it, and it wasn't that bad. This was intense. All of the major arteries in your arms and legs leading to your wrists and your ankles being pulled up from you and you're being puppeteered around by them. The special effects team was fucking on fire when they created this because it looked grotesque and realistic.
1: It looks like it hurts.
2: Yes. That's the part that fucks with you is that he actually looks like he's in pain from it as he's being walked around, which is great acting as well as great effects. There's probably a top 10 that could be
1: done on... Moments that make you wince in a horror movie. Kathy Bates crushing James Caan's ankles mm. in misery. I wince a little bit when they cut to a shot of Philip's feet. Yes. And the veins
2: being pulled out of his feet. It looks like it hurts. All these years later, it's one of the few Hollywood moments, few horror moments, where I still turn my head as yeah. that scene comes on. I can watch it. Yeah, but I will. I watch close it my eyes cringing. a little bit. Just exactly. a little tiny bit. Yeah. It's so good. All this fucking time later, as many times as I've seen this movie, it
1: still gets me. And the gore effects are great. I appreciate the fact that this is going to sound so simple, but that the veins are taut, mm-hmm. so they really look like they're being pulled
2: on. Exactly. And there's little droplets of blood. It's not gushes of blood, rivers of blood. There's little droplets, which would happen, right? Because some of those veins are still spitting little bits of blood. Yeah, and there's a
1: great little pulsing noise that's mm-hmm. happening. Underneath this, as it's cutting from reality to sleep to dreams to reality to sleep to dreams, as it's cutting back and forth, it's doing this. Yeah, because
2: Kincaid and the nurse at the front desk and a couple other people see him walking around and they just see him doing the pose without the veins coming up.
1: Yeah, this pose is his wrists up. Yeah, you know, as if again his veins are being pulled out from his forearms and sort of going up to the air as if Freddy Krueger is the puppeteer. It's really gory. But in all the right ways. It wasn't over the top. But gory in a way that is effective to me Mm -hmm. because I love gore. Sure. But gore is not a quintessential part of a great kill for me. Correct. I've learned as we've done this podcast that I actually do have appreciation for great kills but my appreciation is different Mm -hmm. than most people's. Mm -hmm. Most people just
2: love the gore and they want something creative. The more blood, the more insane body parts, the better.
1: For me, it's about how those things relate to the scene Mm. and that's why I love this kill. And This movie has two great kills. It does. The way this kill relates to the entire scene the way that these veins are taught the music behind it the fact that people are unaware of what's happening but
2: the kids get it Mm -hmm. the kids get what's happening they don't have to see the veins they don't have to see Freddy. they know what the fuck's happening right i absolutely love this kill and i
1: was Mm -hmm. telling you about how when i was a kid i would wake up to you know hbo late at night or mm-hmm. you know the, up all night yeah right. the horror movie version of skinamax <laughs> right, like right. whatever it was i woke up so many times to fill up oh. with the veins out yeah being led down the hallway and it scared the mm-hmm. fuck
2: out of me yeah it's tremendous and then Freddie puppeteers him up to the top of the tower and cuts the veins and he drops everybody in the waking world Sees that as a suicide. And they even mentioned earlier on, Philip is prone to sleepwalking. Yep. So people just kind of brush it off. He was sleepwalking. He fell off the tower. Yeah. Fuck him. He's dead. Not literally, but you know. But the kids know what's going on. But the kids know. And they're doing a great job in this film with another piece of realism in that the kids are screaming and begging for people to hear them. That this is what's happening. Freddie is killing people. And the adults are doing what adults do and not listening to the fucking kids and not taking them seriously when they have something to say, which is something that happens in the real fucking world. Let's circle back to
1: one last great set piece too, which is Kristen's second dream. Mm. Now there's a lot of cool parts where she wanders through the house and there's bugs on food and shit like that. All
2: stuff that upsets you. Creepy, disturbing, haunted house shit.
1: Yeah, all stuff that Reminds Leo of how he first moved into his apartment.
2: (laughs) I was about to buzz right past that. But yes, it was a fucking nightmare for me in terms of the cleanliness. But
1: this gets into one of just the great moments in any Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is when Kristen walks into the room Mm -hmm. that Freddy Krueger appears in as a snake. Yes, And this is just like a fucking masterclass of set design
2: and special effects that's really true if you see the behind the scenes stuff of this and how they put that room together and made it work it's fucking glorious It was a lot of shit went together there's kind of a
1: vibration that goes through the room as if the snake is sort of crawling around the room you see the
2: panels coming off the walls and
1: shit. yeah so the walls are bursting Mm -hmm. not in the cut out of a snake because that'd be fucking stupid but (laughs) but as, as as if the snake was sort of slithering around the room
2: if you ever saw children of the corn you saw the thing rolling under the dirt at, towards the people. It was a lot like that, or
1: like tremors.
2: Exactly, tremors. Yeah, absolutely, yep. and so and it's
1: just bursting off the walls. Kristen is screaming in the middle of it. Everything in here is real. Everything. There's no CGI in here. Yeah. Everything practical in here is some practical effect that is, you know, that is falling over or crashing or blowing mm-hmm. up, and then he bursts out through the ground this as large this worm snake thing. Incredible. Freddie's head. Incredible.
2: Fucking snake bot. It looks. Not like later films where he would have a literal snake body and be a Medusa thing whatever. It looks real and it looks terrifying. And it looks like something that you would have in a nightmare. Which
1: now allows for a lot of plot points to happen mm-hmm. too, which is that we find out that Kristen has this special ability mm-hmm. that she can pull people into her dreams, which is kind of a great gimmick for the movie because it allows these characters to be in the same dreams at the same time. Right.
2: Unlike the first and the second movie where each... They were all dr- on their own. Yeah, they were mm-hmm. all on their own. Yeah. Christian, in a state of panic, screams out Nancy's name. Nancy hears her name being called through the papier-mâché dollhouse that she has in her room. She faints into a chair, or just sits exhaustedly.
1: I I always interpret it as Nancy, through her studies of dreams, has taught herself how to instantly fall asleep and instantly wake up. It could very well be that. That, That's how I've always Mm -hmm. interpreted that, that she has sort of learned to manipulate sleep and dreaming.
2: I get that. And she enters Kristen's dream, sees the big fucking snake attacking her, doesn't know what it is at first, just knows she's in a nightmare. She grabs a shard of broken glass, goes over and stabs the snake. Snake rises up, drops Kristen out of its mouth. The two girls huddle, and Nancy comes face to face with Freddy for the first time since the first movie. Yeah, these she's, are- she's now had years to go on and study dreams and become a psychiatrist and do this life with all of this probably still haunting the back of her mind. She's never really gotten rid of it. And now here he is again. And it was a wonderful moment.
1: I think I interpret one thing a little differently than you. And I love the moment when he goes, you, I think that she knows Mm -hmm. something's up because she has chosen to come back from school Mm -hmm. amidst all these teen suicides and different things that are happening. And she's smart enough to know that when she sees the house and sees that Kristen has this dream power, there's just too many coincidences all happening. For sure. She may not know exactly what's happening, but I think Mm -hmm. that she is aware that something linking from the first movie is happening. I
2: agree with that. I agree that she's conscious of Freddy could still exist. These kids have problems. Maybe it's this. Let me help. I just mean when she lands in this dream world and sees the snake thing from the side profile, She doesn't immediately associate it to Freddy because Freddy, to her point, she says the line later on, has never been this strong that he can change form and he can do these other things. That would never happen in the first film. So she doesn't know that he's this powerful. She doesn't know that he can do these things. Then seeing his face on the front of that snake is like, holy shit. She recognizes him. He recognizes her. It's that great hero, villain, found each other moment. It really comes together. I agree with all that. The next day, in group therapy, the kids are distraught over Philip's death, knowing he was killed by Kruger. The hospital institutes nightly mandatory sedations. Gordon is convinced there's something to the claim that the kids are being haunted in their sleep and prescribes his patient's hypnosil upon Nancy's suggestion. Jennifer stays up in the rec room watching TV, attempting to stay awake by burning her arms with cigarettes. She changes the TV to a late show where Jaja Gabor is killed by Freddy Krueger. The television goes static. Jennifer walks over to fix the signal. Suddenly, two mechanical hands reach from either side of the television and grab her. The head of Freddy Krueger rises from the top, saying one of the most famous lines in the entire series. The time, bitch! Before smashing her head into the TV screen and killing her. Hearing her screams, Max runs into the room and finds her dead body hanging from the television. At her funeral, Dr. Gordon sees a nun standing in the distance. He's seen her before. They talk, and in the conversation, she casually mentions that an unquiet spirit must be laid to rest in order to save the children at the hospital. When Nancy interrupts the conversation, Gordon turns, and the nun has vanished. So Jennifer's death is the second major iconic kill in this
1: movie. There's so many different beats that I like to this part. Mm. So you have the classic Nightmare on Elm Street nod. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment where the character's eyes close and their head shakes for a second. Yeah. It's unclear whether they just nodded for a moment or are they actually asleep. Because literally nothing has changed.
2: Because that's how it should be.
1: Exactly. On the TV screen, a night show comes on where a one of those like insufferable nighttime hosts talk is talking to Zaza Gabor. This is a point where you could look at this and start to thread the needle that this is getting kind of campy. But I disagree, because the cut here is fantastic. Shows Zaza Gabor talking, which that's what happens on these nighttime shows. They talk to celebrities.
2: This is what I mean about these fantastic cuts. The people on TV were still going on with their conversation. Everything in the room was the same. Everything, just no difference whatsoever.
1: It all is very seamless. And this just looks like a regular show. But then what happens, it cuts to the host, and the host is Freddy Krueger. But instead of him killing her on screen, which would have looked ridiculous... It has a really great cut. He just raises the gloves, says, like, you bitch, or something like that, and then it cuts. Almost like you're not totally sure what you saw. And I think this is very nicely done. I actually think, despite the fact that it's this big actress on screen, it's actually built for a scare. It actually comes off a little uncomfortable. I really like it.
2: I'm going to admit something about this scene that is going to be my controversial take with the horror community, I suppose. You're in love with Zaza Gabor. Not in any way. <laughs> I don't think this scene deserves the hype it gets. Hmm. I don't. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was well put together. I liked that they had Dick Cavett on there as the night show host. He was a big deal at the time. People knew who he was. And also, small trivia aside, he wanted Zaza Gabor on there to get killed. He, be- he vouched for that to happen because he thought she was an idiot and wanted to kill her. Okay, Which was just a funny little aside that I've always held on to. Everything about it came together. Everything about it was great. Everybody raves about this. This is the one that's always quoted. There's an Elm Street film later where they do that thing. They have quotes in the beginning of the movie. And one of them is welcome to primetime bitch from Freddy because everyone just fell in love with this fucking thing. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying we've got a giant goddamn snake swallowing Kristen. We've got a kid tied to bed with tongues. We've got Freddy's nightmare boiler dreamscape world that we're going to find. There is so much going on in this movie That, in my opinion, is so much more powerful than this one scene, and so much more in the special effects department and the creativity department than this one moment. To have this overshine everything else that happened in this movie feels wrong to me. Special announcement, everyone. Spoils of Horror is now
1: looking for a new (laughs) co-host. We will be doing auditions. Have fun with that. Yeah. How good are your fat jokes? (laughs) Do you do you like everything to be clean? And what do you think of Julie Brown's rack? I have no problem that you don't see the kill the same way that I do. Mm. I'm weird about kills. I have mm. very strange opinions on them. I really like this one because I like the buildup of her going over the TV. Again, I like the unclear line of where the dream begins and where the waking world ends. And I also just think the special effects of the TV look great. Mm-hmm. These are real mechanical arms. Uh, I'm not sure how they had the come out of the screen, but they are, they are real physical things. And I have no problem with CGI, but I prefer a practical effect when it Same. makes sense. And this just looks so great. And think of how fucking stupid it could have looked. Oh, God, yeah. You have Freddy Krueger's head coming up through the top of the TV with bunny ears on the top. Right. And the way the plastic... As his head is pushing up, sort of vacuum wraps around his face. It actually looks fucking grotesque. I agree. It looks fucked up. Mm -hmm. It could have looked so goddamn stupid. Imagine pitching that. We're going to make Freddy Krueger a TV. (laughs)
2: like No, like a literal TV set. He will be part television.
1: He's going to have a remote stuck to his face. (laughs) He's going to have the bunny ears coming out of the top of his head. This could have looked so fucking dumb. Mm -hmm. It looks great. But. I have one question. So after the kill happens, it cuts to Max walking in and you see this this great image of Jennifer's head. Yeah, her body is lifted off the air because her head is stuck
2: in the TV. Yeah, Freddie smashed her head into the TV, so now she's literally hanging by her throat from the television
1: how the fuck did they think
2: she committed suicide i've been asking that for years they're like oh clearly it was a suicide how there was no furniture in the fucking room that was anywhere near the tv what is she she's the spider-man villain the rhino just stand (laughs) on the other end of the room and just run and throw her head into the tv and also those tv screens on the CRT monitors were not cheap they i mean that's sturdy glass she would have had to get a stepladder and a hammer
1: and (laughs) smack her head into it over and over and over again
2: <laughs> I don't know. They wrote everything off as suicide in this fucking movie. It was weird. I can't imagine how they would walk in on that and go, there's nothing weird about that. Somebody slit their wrist, somebody else took pills, this one smashed her head through TV. It's all the same. She might as well have cut her own head off and then <laughs> and placed it in there. And then placed it in there and had everybody like clearly a suicide. <laughs> Clearly. Her head is facing out to everyone like she's actually on TV. Right. She's got little, little like Freddy Krueger's like slash
1: marks on her face, a note in her mouth. <laughs> Clearly it was a suicide. Mm. So sad. But all joking aside about the attempted throw my head into a TV suicide, I love this script. Mm-hmm. There are certain horror movies that I've revisited as an adult or I've seen as an adult that I've told you about. We talked about this with Piranha, where I'm like, how the fuck is this script so good? Mm-hmm. And then I find out that John Sayles or Frank Darabont wrote it back in the day when they were young. And I'm like, oh, that's why it's so good. That's, okay, that's I yeah. get it. The Piranha script and this script and the blob to me are very similar mm. in that these are scripts that can pack in lots of information, lots of character building. In a movie that shouldn't work. A movie about Killer Piranha should not work. The Blob 1950 is not a good movie. Mm -hmm. The Blob in the 1980s is a fucking great movie. Mm -hmm. This is the third installment of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. This movie should not be as good as it is. Correct.
2: Arguably, amongst the fans, the best of the series.
1: I have to say this may be one of the few sequels that I like more than the original. Mm -hmm. And I fucking love the original. Of course. But this movie is just so jammed packed. We're not going to talk too much about Nancy and Freddie as characters because we decided that we're really going to talk about them when we talk about the OG Nightmare on mm-hmm. Elm Street. It'll happen. But there's so many great scenes with... Nancy and Gordon, who I think in another movie would probably have a romantic relationship. Is that not unfair? It's totally
2: fair, and I'm actually thrilled they did not do that in this one, because it didn't need it. Not that I'm against sex scenes, love scenes, whatever, whatever. I'm just saying- <laughs> He's horribly against them. <laughs> For this movie- It wasn't necessary, and I'm glad they didn't go down that road. The timeline's too brief, but I like the fact that the
1: chemistry was there. They had a nice
2: dinner together. They were getting along really well. They're getting along Mm -hmm.
1: really well. They have some of the same values. There's a great part where she opens up to him about Mm -hmm. how all these things have affected her. There's these great little breadcrumb situations where she sort of sees what she can get away with Mm -hmm. when telling him about Freddy Krueger and these dreams and Mm -hmm. things like that. She opens up about her mom's death, which I did feel that they did a little inaccurately because she said... She died in her sleep, and what I actually would have liked her to have said is how it really happened, which is that my mom died tragically by turning into a mannequin and getting
2: sucked (laughs) into a little window. With a Freddy sleeve, by the way, that did not have stripes on it. It was just a red sleeve.
1: As I rolled away in a Freddy Krueger convertible.
2: (laughs) Maybe that was a little overshare. Maybe it was TMI. Yeah, maybe she was like, you know
1: what? This is second date, and that's really fourth date material to... Talk about how your mom really died <laughs> by turning into an inflatable doll <laughs> and having the air sucked out of her. But well, she... he got fetishes. <laughs> but I really do like all these characters and it's just such a strength of this wonderful script that Gordon is mm. fully fleshed out as a person. But it also packs in something that I really love in these franchise movies that they don't do enough of. Friday the 13th is guilty of abandoning this. World building. Yeah. You don't have to always dip into what I call the lore. Mm -hmm. The lore for me is about the villain. So if you're going to dip into like Friday the 13th lore, it's about Jason. It's about Pamela. but world building is different. World building is you can step back and you can go, okay, we've covered everything with Jason except for his fucking father, which, which you and I are about. not that interested in. So what about the larger picture?
2: The people live in the town.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the old Final Girls or mm-hmm. Tommy Jarvis or yeah. what's happening with these characters? What's happening with the camp? What is the larger world building we can do with these movies? Mm-hmm. Mom, Stomp Films has done a great job with world building. I love them for that. They've yeah. done such a good job with it. This script has so much fantastic world building. Mm-hmm. The hypnosil, bringing Nancy back, mm-hmm. bringing John Saxon back, exploring a different part of Springwood. Right,
2: it's not just in suburbia now, it's over at this clinic.
1: And also, the nun, who we're going to mm-hmm. find out, is Amanda Kruger. Now this movie gets to have its cake and eat it too, because it also gets to build the lore
2: Yes,
1: by telling us her backstory and telling us how she gave birth to Freddy Krueger. I have bitched
2: endlessly on this show about too much backstory, too much exposition, too much shit that we don't need to know about and care about. This is one of the few films, to your point, that has a golden opportunity to dip their toe into that and create something. What they created, in my opinion, was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't dwell on it. They didn't do flashbacks. They didn't do all this weird shit. They just had a very simple conversation. Oh, by the way, this shit happened. And then later on, we find out how it's all connected, and it worked as a fluid motion within the film. And it also works that we don't know this in the previous films. Exactly. And the
1: reason is because what happened to Amanda Kruger happened to her at that hospital. Mm-hmm. So therefore, by moving the story into this hospital, that's why Amanda Kruger, who is a ghost there, mm-hmm. is able to start talking to these characters and telling them what's happening. Yeah. Amanda Kruger doesn't know Nancy at all. Nope. But she knows Gordon because she haunts the hospital. She's seen him around. He's been there working
2: there for however long.
1: And she knows he cares about the kids. Mm-hmm. That's why she's starting to show up to him. Mm-hmm. And to- she has this
2: tremendous line. He says, I've seen her around the hospital before. Do you work here? She goes, I show up from time to time. I when love that I'm line needed. too. And this is a bit part, but the actress is great. And it doesn't need to be more than what she is. This is like three or four scenes with her in this movie. It's just to fill in a little bit of exposition and move the shit in a certain direction and then she's done. And it's perfect.
1: When she tells the story of the bastard son of a thousand maniacs, I love that. She has this resigned sadness Mm. because she is both trying to tell Gordon what he needs to know, but that is also bringing up the memory of what Mm. happened. And there is something about the acting and all that that is really perfect for me that she's not only talking about her own trauma because she has a goal. This is not her therapy I need to session. Share this. this is. this. Yeah. I need to tell you this because you need to do something with this. Mm-hmm. And you need to know how this is all interconnected. You need to believe me mm. as to how bad Freddy Krueger is, that he is real, and that you need to intervene by giving his proper burial. I agree completely. And I love talking about a minor character yeah. and how good they are in a role.
2: Back in group therapy, Nancy tells Gordon and the teens about Freddy Krueger, sharing her story and his backstory, revealing that they're all the last of the Elm Street children being killed as revenged for his death by their parents. Kristen is the key to their survival, due to her ability to pull others into her dreams. Working together and using dream powers, which can be harnessed to fight Freddy, they can survive. Dr. Gordon uses a pendulum to hypnotize the kids, and they fall asleep. While dreaming, the kids experiment with their new dream powers. Kincaid is super strong. Taryn is a knife-wielding punk. Kristen is agile like a gymnast. Will, the dorkiest wizard this side of Gondor. Meanwhile, Joey wanders down the hall and is captured by Freddy Krueger, posing as a super-hot, babelicious nurse he's been crushing on. When everyone wakes, they realize Joey is still unconscious and trapped in the dream world by Freddy. Nancy and Gordon are fired due to Joey's coma. Carrying boxes to his car, Gordon sees the nun from the graveyard standing at the top of the tower. He climbs the stairs and finds her in an old section of the hospital. She tells Gordon the building once held the criminally insane, and a young girl on staff was accidentally locked in over a holiday weekend. She is raped hundreds of times by the criminal lunatics inside. Her name was Amanda Kruger. She gave birth to Freddy. She tells Gordon that in order to be killed, Freddy's remains must be buried in hallowed grounds. After telling Nancy about the nun, Gordon and Nancy know they need to find Kruger's remains, and Nancy can only think of one person to be able to help them. They visit her estranged father, Officer Donald Thompson, at the local dive bar where he's been drinking his life away since the events of the first film. He refuses to share the location of Kruger's remains, in denial that Freddy still exists. Nancy gets a call that Kristen has been sedated and is sent to help by Gordon, who stays behind and convinces Officer Thompson to help, violently. Nancy arrives at the hospital and gathers the remaining dream warriors to save Kristen and Joey. Using a metronome, she puts them all to sleep, and they find Kristen in the dream world. But Freddy quickly separates them. Will and Taryn are killed shortly thereafter before Kincaid, Nancy, and Kristen are able to find one another, regroup, and head down into the boiler room to rescue Joey. They fight Kruger and pull Joey from a fiery pit. But just as Kruger is about to deliver a killing shot, he disappears. Something is happening.
1: I'm so grateful that you fell for my trap
2: to read the word babelicious. I was going to not, but I knew you'd want it in there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I like to put words there to see if Leo will read them.
1: I can't remember if it was during Bloody Birthday or if it was during Return of the Living Dead, but you had mentioned that there was a three, a theme yes. between these three movies. Yes, there is. I feel like the the end of that journey is probably in this section.
2: You'd be surprised. I don't really know <laughs> what that could possibly be. I mean, there is a journey to be told of my favorite films for August. That's true. I'm going to
1: assume that it is the way these characters empower themselves through their dreams Mm -hmm. or maybe some of the imagery i'm not going to assume that has anything to do with the naughty nurse who captures joey uh,
2: absolutely not actually in literal sense no that's nothing to do with this
1: i don't believe it at all but go right ahead
2: (laughs) unlike most people of the world my particular heartthrob of this film is not the sexy nurse nor is it the punk chick it's nancy He's like,
1: there's a theme that ties these together. And I was like, sounds like a pair of boobs in each one of them.
2: (laughs) There was something about Nancy in the first film, even though she was this girl next door type, which is counter to what I was hanging out with at the time. She got my attention in a very uh, romantic and lovely way. And in this film, this sort of older version of her, like the hot older sister, I guess, it really solidified it for me. And she was very put together and very smart and just very lovely in this movie And I could spend another two hours gushing on how attractive she is, but I won't. You mean it wasn't the 25-year-old nurse
1: hooking up with the 17-year-old teenager? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will tell you this. I crushed on that nurse. Hardcore.
2: (laughs) a lot of people did. Hardcore. God, she's beautiful. She's still beautiful. I'm not going to deny that. Just saying that's not where my particular heart lied.
1: It is pretty funny, though, because she says, we could get in a lot of trouble for this. And I'm like, yes, you could. (laughs) More than just being at the hospital, yes. You're not just worried about your job here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We could get in a lot of trouble for this, Joey.
2: (laughs) Have you ever heard of the sex offender list? (laughs) I could be on that. I could meet John Walsh and Chris Hansen. (laughs) (laughs) Who
1: are those pizzas for and those beers? (laughs) It's, it's all good. It's just Joey's fantasy. And, <laughs> and, w- and
2: was mine too. <laughs> but that's part of the cool thing with this scene, though, is we're having nightmares, of course, but we're also exploring dreams, which includes fantasies. Well, and this is the one part where I say it doesn't trick
1: you into thinking that there's an actual, no, that this... they're in the waking world. Because what happens is, is all the characters you know, use the metronome to, mm-hmm. to fall asleep. They wake up and they're like, oh, I, I guess nothing happened. And Joey looks out into the hallway and the nurse flirts with him. And immediately is like, this is a dream. And uh huh. Yeah.
2: The moment she makes winky eyes at him, oh, we're dreaming. That's not going to. But happen. the
1: sequence is still great. I love all the technical aspects of it. Of course. But I, I also think the 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 tongue thing is really cool, and mm-hmm. I love the uh, I love the way that she sort of hisses at him and becomes yeah. a sort of like creature, and then the bed drops. I I just I, like I do all like like of that. The sequence. very
2: simple way in the practical effects world that they had her leaning over Joey, and then she stands back, and it's suddenly Freddy, and you know. She probably just ducked behind the camera and England was standing there. And it's a smooth transition from the camera shot. But it worked really well. It was a simple, simple move that really sold the effect. I do know one piece of trivia about this movie,
1: which is that originally when she pulled back, it was going to be her nude body, but it was going to be Freddie's head. Mm -hmm. And they said it was like hideous. Like they just (laughs) couldn't do it. Like it was just grotesque. (laughs) A lot of times when they get into the dreams of these characters, they're very, like, idiosyncratic, especially, mm-hmm. like, later on. Yeah. You know, it, it's these very, very, very specific dreams. And I, I kind of like this as one that is is general that a lot of people have experienced. Mm-hmm.
2: And I do, again, love that they're willing to explore more than just nightmares in this. They're exploring the entire psychosis of dreaming and what that means and how different people have different dreams and all of it.
1: But let's go to one of the big scenes, which is our cast of characters in the group therapy room, becoming our dream warriors. They Mm -hmm. are learning about their powers. First of all, I love the camera work Mm -hmm. when the scene starts and when Nancy is explaining to them who Freddy Krueger is.
2: I love how she's talking about I know what you're going through. I know what you're dealing with. And the kids are like, don't fucking humor us because everyone has told them that up till this point, right. And it's always been false. And then she hits, no, no, here's this guy and here's where he came from and here's why he's killing you. And it just solidified the relationship she had with him.
1: Well, and it's very empowering for them because mm-hmm. the kids can look deep within themselves. They can harness their inner strength and they can manifest any power that is within the limits of the movie's budget. <laughs> that
2: is true. <laughs> <laughs>
1: In my dreams I can turn my tongue into a fruit roll <laughs> In my dreams I, I can, can do wiggle my ear. I can do basic level juggling. <laughs> <laughs> I love the whole concept of these characters <laughs> finding their their inner thing mm. that is their power that they want to do, but these powers are very basic.
2: <laughs> it does bring me the question. Everybody gets their own little dream power, and they're all—one turns into a punk rock chick, one stands up from his wheelchair and can do spells, and very simple stuff, as you say. We never find out what Nancy's power is.
1: I'm wondering if her power is just something we couldn't see at all, like she has no student loan debt. <laughs> Her, she has adult problems. Yeah. Her perm never falls.
2: <laughs>
1: she has a great sense of 80s fashion.
2: That power suit. Really working it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Those, those were her dream powers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> There's this whole sequence at the end of the film where a theory about her being the white light dream protector while Freddy's the dark light. Sure. And maybe that's what it is towards the end. She just earns that. But you'd think after all this time and all of her studying with dreams and her being the one to tell the kids, you have powers, you can do this, that she would have had something. So after all this happens,
1: these various moments where these characters test out their powers and they share their powers with each other and they're all kind of delighted about what's happening, Freddy shows up, but in kind of a more ethereal form Mm -hmm. the doors and walls start to get hot and they start to almost turn into like the inside of a boiler furnace Mm -hmm. and they start closing in on them kincaid tries to push the wall but it burns his hands they can't get out they stand in the middle of the room and they're about to get crushed and then it just so happens one of the doctor walks into the room wakes everybody up and they find that joey's in a coma and that he's been trapped Mm -hmm. This scene is so incredibly fucking important to this script. In a lesser script, these characters would have all gotten their powers, they would have put their hands in the middle, and they were going to say, we're going to kick Freddy's ass, and then there would have been a montage. The reason this scene matters is because it reminds you that Freddy is in charge and is more powerful than them. He would have killed all of them in that moment.
2: Had Dr. Sims not walked through the door.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it keeps the stakes of the movie high Mm -hmm. when it would have been really easy to give the heroes too much power and then just to act like it was going to be smooth sailing Mm -hmm. from there. This point and the point where they actually go into the dream world and Freddy starts killing them off Mm -hmm. is a very wise choice because it maintains the movie as a horror movie despite the fact that these characters have superpowers that would have made it into an action
2: movie. Right. In the upcoming scene, Nancy has a line where she confronts Freddy face-to-face in the dream world and says, there's something wrong. He's never been this strong before. At that point, it's the movie telling the audience, this is Freddy gaining more power. But this scene is where the subtle show of that comes in, where we get to see he's stronger than people think he is, We're just not going to hit you over the head with it.
1: It makes it very clear what has happened between him and Nancy. Nancy has given these kids a fighting chance Mm -hmm. and a way that they can survive their dreams. But this is not a way to kill Freddy Krueger at all. Not at all. This is just a way to survive. Mm -hmm. This is just a way to have a better chance. If
2: you use your powers correctly, if you work on them, if you develop them, then you might be able to live for another day.
1: Well, and she's still operating on the rules of the first movie. Exactly. That if
2: they can push back against their fear... I was going to actually bring this up. This is one of my greatest takes from this script, one of the things I love so much. Nancy, up until the moment I mentioned where she's going to come face to face with freddie still is treating freddie like the first film where he wasn't all that powerful he had only just started doing dream demon shit da, 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 and it was the fear that drove him so she's like stop being afraid stop being afraid not realizing that's not working
1: it's like if you took away his food mm-hmm. but he still can't die he's right. still unkillable what she's doing ...is effective up to a point.
2: Mm-hmm. It's not like in the first film where she turns her back on him and he disappears and she wins. Getting your powers and confronting him and not being afraid of him will not stop him this time. Right, because the only thing that can stop Freddy Krueger is if the movie tanks.
1: That's why we, have, <laughs> we don't have a part two remake. That's right. <laughs> when these kids go into the dream world... They only have a moment where they reconnect with Kristen, who was sedated, and yada, yada, yada. I love the way her sedation comes back into the script. Absolutely. Because they can all go into the dream, but they can't get out. Mm -hmm. Because she's sedated. Because she's the host. But these characters all come in, and they all reunite for a moment. And then what does Freddy do? He separates them. Mm -hmm. Because this is another thing that Nancy gets right. Fighting Freddy alone versus fighting Freddy as a group... They have a lot more of a chance. Mm-hmm. The reason that they're able to do that is because Freddie is pulled in too many different directions. I have a note about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I love about this is that Nancy is correct. Mm-hmm. It is the group working together that works against Freddie because there are multiple times where
2: what does Freddie do to fight them? Tries to pull them apart. Is This his best way to beat them one by one versus all together. Exactly.
1: This movie takes the dream stuff and the Freddy Krueger bullshit and that he can't die and actually makes the rules make
2: for the most part sense. The note that I had was about Freddy very nearly pulling off the perfect crime. When they all get together after the hypnosis and start learning about the dream powers, Joey sneaks away to go have his fantasy with the nurse. They didn't see it. Freddy separated one out and could have easily got him dead. Could have easily just, you're gone. And then was distracted by them pulling together. Oh my God, these guys are actually threat. I got to go do something about that. Yep. So he just left Joey tied up to come back to later on.
1: But there's a second reason why Joey is left as... A hostage. Debate them. And why? Because of the Hypnosil. They're not dreaming. So he can't reach them unless they go in on purpose. Exactly. Oh my God. Can Frank Darabont write every <laughs> horror script? <laughs> Please. This
2: actually makes sense. And for a script that was written by Wes Craven and then rewritten later on by this guy.
1: And I fucking love Wes Craven. So oh, yeah. let me be clear. There is
2: no bad feelings towards him. Craven's original idea for this script is a lot of what New Nightmare came out to be. He wanted a lot of that stuff in this story for the third movie. I think they did a fantastic job. And for whatever it's worth in his afterlife, apologies that you got boinked out of that one and they kind of did you dirty. But this script came out exceedingly well at Mm -hmm. the hands of the right man. So let's talk about what happens when these characters are separated. We have a sequence with Freddy Krueger fighting Kristen. She gets away. Yeah, there's a great scene where Kristen dreams she's back in her room. It's the beginning of the movie all over again. But her mother comes in, and she's really nice, and she's really sweet. And she talks about she's got a friend downstairs, turns out to be Freddie who cuts her head off, and then the severed head is screaming at her. For Hollywood, it's early CGI, not like what we have today, which is much more advanced. So it looks a little hokey by today's standards to some, I'm sure, but it came out really well.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. I think it looked really, really nice. Then we move to Taryn. And Taryn has a scene where she fights Freddy Krueger in an alleyway. I don't know where in Springwood this is. <laughs>
2: I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a CD alley somewhere in Springwood. Uh, yeah, I
1: was gonna say one CD <laughs> alley next to the farmers market and the small drugstore mm. that I've always pictured in Springwood. <laughs>
2: This is where we start to see him digging into their individual consciousness. Absolutely. He's bringing Kristen home, because that's where, for want of a better term, her fear lies, with her mom and the stress and the bullshit. Bringing Taryn to the back seedy alley where she used to do all the drugs and shit, which is her nightmare. She doesn't want to be there anymore. She doesn't want to be in that environment, so he's playing that in... Try and get her afraid.
1: There's great music during this part, too. When they have their little fight, their little Mm -hmm. tussle, because, of course, she fights Freddy with the two switchblades. I always feel like this fight goes a little, it's a little too fast. I just wish it was
2: my very next note. 30 seconds longer. I wish there was a longer fight. Yeah. I wish the two of them were at it a little more. A little more give and take. A couple extra slashes on each other before. it It was like 20, 30 seconds of fight. Right, It wasn't really that great. And it's too bad because I think that it is, number one, earned. And number
1: two, I think it would make her dying Mm. and not winning... A little more powerful. A little bit more powerful. They give Will a little bit more because they give him the stuff with the wheelchair. Of course. They make it a little longer, and I wish Taryn's Mm. death was a little bit longer. Especially because I like the character, and so I want the death to hit hard. I don't think that every character I like needs to have a heroic death. I think every character I like need to, needs to have a death that hits hard. I agree. When she dies, it just feels a little too quick. Let's talk about Will's death. There's a, a great start to this. They're in this very atmospheric hallway. He's standing there because, of course, one of his dream powers is that he's no longer bound in his wheelchair. Yeah, bound in his wheelchair. And there's a really cool, like, prop Mm-hmm. of this bladed wheelchair that Freddy sends down the hallway at him and he dodges it and it turns around it comes back at him this is all very cool mm-hmm. and then he kind of like harnesses his dream power and he turns into this wizard from you know Dungeons and Dragons blasts the chair blows it up this is a, an incredibly special moment in Nightmare on Elm Street history It is the first time in Nightmare on Elm Street history where Freddy Krueger is almost killed by embarrassment.
2: (laughs) I've had my time playing Dungeons and Dragons as a youth. Everybody knows that the wizard shoots from a distance. You don't rush in at the villain. That was your mistake.
1: Oh, the 30 seconds between him (laughs) rising as this wizard... And him blasting Freddy, (laughs) I could write a book about. (laughs) So first of all, he starts off with this dialogue sequence that is just, like, eye-drying embarrassing. (laughs) I am Gwildor, king of the wizards, by the light of Hyrule, blah, blah, (laughs) blah, blah, blah.
2: It's exactly every stereotype you think of a nerd who plays D&D.
1: And with the sword of Thundera. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: good reference
1: demon be gone and he looks like a dweeb he looks like a giant Dracula they gave
2: him this really massive fucking robe cape Cloak, it's a combination of three different things that just, he looks like a kid wearing his dad's Halloween costume.
1: He's just saying all this corny Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons shit. I just want to be like, Will, these are your last words. Stop <laughs>
0: talking.
1: Stop talking. Is this
2: what you want on your headstone?
1: When I was young, I used to use AOL chats to <laughs> play role-playing games. yeah. yeah. And I didn't have a lot of friends in high school, but I had a few friends that would play. Mm-hmm. And so you would go online and you would, you know, I'd play a thief. I always played a thief and I would like steal stuff from my friends, you know, pirate ship and, you know, swing from the sails. And it was all bullshit. It wasn't even good D and D because <laughs> you just randomly roll dice and you'd be like, yes, what I just said happened, happened. I remember going back to school the next day and my friend who I'd played with the night before looking at me and being like, I can't believe it! last night you stole the magical axe from my ship and then took it and then brought it to the orcs and then sold it to them. And that, I learned a very valuable lesson. The words that you say playing Dungeons & Dragons should never be uttered in any other place in
2: life. In that game, in that environment, yes, the rest of the world needs never hear it.
1: I was already an outcast. (laughs) I'm skinny. I was covered in acne. I'm a bisexual kid with two friends to my name, asthma and braces. Stop fucking talking.
2: Please, dear God, shut the fuck up. I will be dead by the end of today if you don't close your fucking mouth.
1: My God, Will, shut the fuck up. (laughs) This scene set Dungeons and Dragons back 20 years. But what I will say about Taron's death and Will's death is there is one little detail that I like in both of them. I like Terrance death way better than oh, Will's sure. death. There's a moment where each of them fight back where Freddy Krueger seems surprised. And I always used to not get that because I always used to be like, well Freddy Krueger, he can't be killed and mm. you know, he can take these hits. What what does all this mean? And I realized something. It's when these characters hit him when they punch him, when they hit him with an axe, when they hit him with a magic spell. That's not what matters. It's that they fought back. Yes. In all these moments when Taryn fights back, when he gets hit with the spell, he, he looks kind of surprised. Yes, absolutely. And that's because they fought back.
2: To Nancy's point, if you stand up to him, it will have an effect on him. Not the yeah. same effect as it had in the first film, but it will definitely make him take that step back to where you have the advantage. And now that we've eliminated, I don't want to call him the dead weight, but the other characters in the film, we get to Kristen, Kincaid, Nancy. And they find a door floating in the middle of the room, head down into the boiler. They go down into this, literally looks like hell. It's red stones everywhere, fire pits, boiler in the back. And there's Joey tied to the bed by the tongues. They call out Freddy. He comes out. He's like, come get him, bitch. And they all go down, rescue Joey just in the nick of time before he falls into the fire pit. And Freddy starts attacking. Kristen does her flips, tries to gymnastic her way out of it. Doesn't work. Kincaid runs up to him, gets swatted away like a fly, then grabs Kincaid by the throat, lifts him up. Nancy drives a spear through his gut, which in the first movie would have worked. Does not work here. And that's when he tears his shirt off, revealing the souls of the children that he's killed that are feeding him the power and da-da-da-da-da.
1: So there's so much that's great in here. First of all, this is a great set piece. Absolutely. This whole boiler room looks phenomenal. Mm -hmm. My only criticism of it is they wash it with red at first. But then when the fight actually happens, you see that it's like highlighted with blue Mm -hmm. and purple. It's a lot better when the room looks a little bit more dynamic. It comes together more. Just that like washed out red. Yeah. I get what they're going for, which is that, again, they're building up these three characters fear because these three characters are together. Mm -hmm. So now he's got to really like push the fear. And the whole steel staircase
2: as if descending into hell.
1: I love the fight. I love when these characters jump in. They're all using their different abilities. It's kind of like the fight with Thanos in Infinity War 1. It is true, though. Everybody kind of mm-hmm. jumps in and does their thing, but they have to jump out because they're not
2: f- they're not strong enough to take Freddy on their own. Correct. So they can kind of do their thing. Spider Man comes through some portals and kicks him a few times, and then right. Iron Man flies through and smacks him. And-
1: yeah. So yeah. they have to kind of go in and go out. They have to mm-hmm. kind of duck in, duck out, and so that's what happens here. And again, my only complaint is that it's not a little longer. Right. Actually, actually it should have been. Yeah. Really enjoy this fight. It's mm-hmm. really fun to watch. The one other little tiny criticism that I have with this is that they all fight Freddy kind of like the way the Foot Clan fights, which is <laughs> one foot soldier runs in and fights 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 and then gets and then the other ones sort of like wait <laughs> on the sides. And and it works when you do the jump in jump out thing when you have other characters doing something mm-hmm. or when the whole idea is that I go in and I hit Freddy and then I jump out. But that's not really what happens here. Like Kristen really engages with him, mm-hmm. then gets nope. knocked down. Yeah, nobody
2: does anything else until she gets thrown away. Right, and yeah. that like that's not how it works.
1: She has to jump in and kick him and then jump out. Right. And then Kincaid mm-hmm. has to go in and punch him and then jump out. Right, right. They don't quite do it that way.
2: And this is that great moment where Nancy says, Oh my God, he's never been this strong. And Freddy reveals his power and how he's gaining power. And... And they do a little bit more to the lore. Mm-hmm. This is when we learn that he sucks up those souls. Yeah, It's not just killing the kids. It's that when he kills them, he absorbs the soul, and the soul is what feeds him, keeps him going, gives him the stream powers. It's amazing how much we know about Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. comes from the third movie and not the first exactly. movie. It's really... A dynamic world building, to your point, in this film of who he is, where he came from, why he's as strong as he is, how can he get away with what he does. All of that happens here. The first film, he's just a guy that comes back and dreams and fucks with people. This one, they really, really build him up and make something solid that we can land on and say, oh, God, this guy is fucked. Yeah, I agree. Stopping to pick up holy water and a cross, Gordon and Thompson arrive at the Springfield Nuclear power plant. (laughs) Stopping to pick up holy water and a cross, Gordon and Thompson arrive at the Springwood Junkyard to find and bury the hidden remains of Freddy Krueger. Pulling Krueger's bones from the trunk of an old Cadillac, Gordon and Thompson get to work, but are interrupted when the junkyard seems to come to life. Cars begin beeping their horns and shining their headlights. Gordon hurries to finish the burial, but the skeleton of Krueger grabs his hand and starts to attack. In the fight... Thompson is killed, and Gordon is knocked unconscious. Back in the dream world, Kincaid, Nancy, Joey, and Kristen walk through a hallway of mirrors. Kruger shows up, appearing in the reflections, and pulls each character into a different mirror. Joey panics and screams loud enough to shatter the glass, throwing our heroes back into the hallway. It's an awesome set piece with Joey discovering his dream power. Kristen senses Kruger is gone. It's over. In the next room, Nancy sees her father. He's dead, and he's crossed over. He's stopping by to give her one last goodbye. She hugs him tenderly, but it's a trap. Nancy is stabbed by Kruger, posing as her dad. Joey and Kincaid are trapped outside the room while Freddy tries to kill Kristen, but Nancy jumps on his back, stabbing him with his own glove. Meanwhile, Gordon wakes up in the junkyard, pours holy water on Kruger's bones, and uses the cross to put the bones to rest. In the dream world, Freddy is consumed by the holy energy and dies. Kincaid and Joey burst into the room to see Nancy has died as well. At Nancy's funeral days later, Gordon sees the nun standing behind him in the distance. He runs to her, but she vanishes in front of the headstone marked Amanda Kruger. The nun was Freddy's mother. That night, we see Kristen's papier-mâché dollhouse on Dr. Gordon's bedside table. A light in the small room upstairs turns on, and the movie ends. I've been raving about how the special effects for this movie
1: are timeless, until I got to Freddy Kruger's skeleton. <laughs> I'd call that timeless. Yes, in that it is stuck in a time.
2: Yeah, 1950. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of those special effects that you wonder, did this look good when people watched it? I seem to remember it did. When I saw it for the first time as a kid, I'm like, whoa. Very much like Terminator used the same kind of effects... Yes. of filming a small mechanical in front of the movie playing as it played. That's true.
1: The 1986 or 84 Terminator movie, the first one, mm-hmm. that yes, when the Terminator's chasing Sarah Connor at the end, it looks very similar. Yeah. It's very Harryhausen. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. If you've ever seen Clash of the Titans. That's exactly what I came to mind when I watched this every time. It's that scene in Clash of the Titans where he's battling the skeletons.
1: Yeah. Or when he's fighting Medusa. Mm-hmm. Like this skeleton could have been dating Medusa in that movie. <laughs> For what it was, it was a good fight. Oh, it works just fine, although I will maintain this from Bloody Birthday. Shovels to the face are always funny and never scary.
2: (laughs) Especially when you get that nice clong.
1: Yes, and there is one of those. And it doesn't help that Gordon looks like Bill Maher. Also true. So you have Bill Maher fighting a skeleton and getting a shovel to the face. Yes,
2: not quite the cannibal women in the avocado jungle of death, but close enough. And there's also
1: just a funny moment, because he kills John Saxon's character, the skeleton, not Gordon. And then <laughs> he's done with John Fuck Saxon. you. Yeah. The skeleton kills Saxon's character, then knocks out Gordon's character, then does this hilarious, like, I just won the fight in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, <laughs> like, sort of jumps up and down and throw his hands in the air.
2: I really... Wanted so badly when they did Mortal Kombat years and years later, and they threw Freddy Krueger in as a DLC character for him to have that as a finishing move, where he just stands there doing that
1: pose. Do you remember when you would, <laughs> when you would win a fight in like a Final Fantasy game? Mm. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's the noise that it would make if you play any of those old games and Freddy Krueger just like he just th-
2: sort of thumps his fist in the air he's like I've still got it I'm yeah. still Krueger he's like a dead Arsenio Hall yes whooping it up but this is
1: all to my point that Freddy Krueger's getting pulled in lots of different directions yeah
2: it's the one advantage they have separating him the way they're doing and actually it leads to what I think is one of his funny lines when he shows up in all the mirrors in the hallway He's like, sorry to keep you waiting. Perhaps if there's more of me to go around. And he's making fun of it, but at the same time going, I need to outnumber these guys.
1: I mean, I've talked about like great set piece, great set piece, blah, 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 blah. blah. Is there a better one than this mirror scene? Not at all. This mirror yeah. scene is phenomenal. First of all, I want that hallway. It's very cool. There's a it's a red, like a deep blood red hallway with these sort of cracks down the walls. Mm-hmm. And then it's got all these mirrors. Just
2: ornate, gold framed mirrors. On every inch of the wall.
1: Yeah, and Freddy Krueger appears in each and every one of them. I think it just looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think it looks uh, really sharp. I love the way that he just wins very quickly. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people question how they get out of it, which is what Mm -hmm. happens with Joey. But it brings to my point. It doesn't matter about punching him. It doesn't matter about kicking him. Mm -hmm. It matters about standing up to him. Yes, And that's what Joey does. When Joey screams no, and notice he does it forcefully. Mm -hmm. He does not do it in a way that's like, oh, I'm scared, no. Mm -hmm. He screams it like he's like Banshee from X-Men. I
2: was about to make that comparison. Exactly that. And Freddy is not necessarily felled by this as much as he's just taken aback by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kid has never spoken a day in all the days that Freddy's been torturing him at the hospital up till now. Suddenly, I'm not going to let you get away with this. That makes Freddie take a step back. Go, shit, now what do I do? And standing up to Freddie, however, you do it Mm -hmm. using your dream power to
1: karate kick him, or or using your dream power to hit him with a pipe, or speak out, or make sushi,
2: whatever. whatever. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yes, your killer perm. (laughs) Nancy, I have no student loan debt. (laughs) But using your power to stand up to him, that's what hurts him. It can't kill him. But, but it, it can, can start hurt him.
2: him. It can make him pause. It can make him take that step back and recollect himself to fight again, which he does in a very sinister but beautiful way, floating in, pretending to be Nancy's dead dad. I will tell you this. I could have done without the fairy dust. Yeah. That, that
1: John Saxon, never in John Saxon's career did he think he was going to float down on Twinkle <laughs> Stardust. Yeah, right. Twinkle Stardust. <laughs>
2: But I can see why Freddy would do that, because Kristen's looking around like, I don't feel him anywhere, and Nancy screams, it's over. So Freddy gets this idea in his head, if I come showing up at the exact opposite, as something that looks angelic, they'll never suspect me. Nancy's operating on
1: the information she had from the first movie. Correct. Correct. So there's no reason she wouldn't believe that he was dead. Now that we've turned our back on him, demon's gone. Yep. Mm -hmm. Who is the person he has realized he needs to get rid
2: of the most? It's her. Absolutely. Because she's the leader of this group. And she organized this to get against him. And she is a bigger threat than any of them put together because she's not only been a pain in the ass to him through this film, but survived the first time. She was the first one to ever stop him.
1: If Nancy continues to survive, they're going to continue to survive, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. If he kills her, the rest are dead. They'll be picked off, off one by head, one. Get the rest done. I like the logic of this. She goes in there. We find out it's Freddie. He stabs her. Kristen gets pulled in again, picking him off one by one. Exactly. But I always noticed when I was a kid that when Nancy jumps up behind him and takes his own glove and puts it in his gut, mm-hmm. it really seems to hurt him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, is that like a? Is that like a thing? Is that mm-hmm. like his own glove can kill him he or can't something like his own that?" Weaponry. I think it is the ultimate
2: version of what
1: we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it. Mm-hmm. It is the ultimate Nancy standing up to him. And what does Final Girls do?
2: They use their own weapon. Yep. They use the mm-hmm. killer's own weapon against That's them. That's it exactly right. Leslie Vernon, you nailed it. Fuck you,
1: Leslie Vernon. <laughs> Fuck you. God, I, I like that movie more every day. and I didn't think I did. <laughs> Fuck you. God damn yeah, it. everybody
2: stops sending him bad letters. He likes the movie. It's good. I do like that movie, Leslie Vernon. When Nancy beat him in the first film, she's the first kid that ever stopped him. And then she comes back in this one, technically beats him again. I don't think her stabbing him with his own knives would have stopped him permanently, but again, gave him that step back. Mm-hmm. Gave him that moment of pain because he was like, "What the fuck? Where is this coming from?"
1: Well, and he's really, really being stood up to. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not just him being hit with his own weapon. It's his. It's, it's the only person that's ever beat and him before. She's,
2: I will not allow you to do this.
1: And she's mm-hmm. coming up like from the dead. Like exactly. she's like her dying breath is this. Yeah. There's a lot of strength in this move, mm-hmm. and that is something that I always feel like it doesn't kill Freddy, but it drains him.
2: Yeah, exactly that. I think with his power coming from fear. When there's no fear, he's less powerful.
1: In the first movie, he doesn't die because we know that by the end. But he just sort of withers away. Mm-hmm. Back into Stardust. It, back into stardust. <laughs> Into old 80s effects. And why? Because, because the fear is what gives him power, mm-hmm. and she's taken that away.
2: But it doesn't kill him. Exactly. Especially now, this much time later, as we've said again and again, it's not just the fear feeding him anymore. It's the souls of the kids. The fear helps. The, feel bu- the fear builds it. The fear makes it happen. You can take that away from him. He'll still be strong. He'll still have the souls feeding him. And she takes the fear from him at this point. Neither Kristen nor Nancy are necessarily afraid of him right now. And that's what makes it hurt. That's what makes him slow down in the scene.
1: And we get some nice resolution at the end with Gordon. Mm-hmm. We get to see the funeral that seems to have the same 25 people that showed up to <laughs> the other... They're always the same funeral goers. They're professional
2: funeral people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Imagine having that as a job. People yeah. pay you just to show up at a funeral because nobody else will.
1: Gordon finds out the uh, thing about Amanda Kruger, which is I always think is a really nice touch to the movie. puts a button on it. Yeah, it puts a nice button on it and then we go to... Her story
2: arc, I should say. Yeah.
1: yeah. But it takes us to the last shots of the movie where we find out something very important about Gordon, which is that uh, that dude likes to put his Christmas lights out early. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, he very much does. Super weird. He's a, he's a Christmas guy. Yeah, they, they show a shot outside of his house and I was like, that dude is his Christmas lights out. <laughs> he's a bachelor. He's batching it. Yeah. But it does leave us on a nice little note, which mm. is that we see the papier-mâché house. A little light comes on, which tells us Freddy Krueger has been drained.
2: But he's still in there. But he's still out there. What's really fascinating, and again, we're not a trivia show, but I have so much in my head about this, and I've been choosing the right moments. In the original script that Wes Craven wrote, the ending with the light coming on was meant to be Nancy. Because Kristen, as she's holding Nancy, Nancy's dying. She says, I'm going to dream you into a beautiful dream. Nancy was meant to become this white light opposite of Freddy Krueger. So okay. in the dream world, there's Freddy on the bad side, there's Nancy on the good side, sort of a protector and a and a like a a heaven and hell for the dream world
1: well and I like that interpretation because the light coming on in the house doesn't feel particularly threatening especially because they have the dream Mm -hmm. Malaysian doll that so there's a a doll that Mm -hmm. Nancy has in the movie that she says is like a good protector of dreams and the resolution at the end is that Gordon has that doll kind of like in her memory
2: and remember that this was supposed to be the final one Wes Craven wrote it as we're never going to do another Freddy Krueger movie everybody had assumed this was going to be the last one so having Nancy quote unquote quote, in that house, turning that light on, saying, I'm over here, Gordon, I'm protecting you, I'm watching over you, was supposed to be a finality to it.
1: I actually do like that
2: ending, Mm.
1: especially because... As much as I like part four, part four I like in a campy sort of way. Well, that's when it started going down that road of camp and cartoon. And, and it makes yeah. like no sense how he comes back at sure. all in that movie. And that's always irritated me. Not because I actually have a problem with him coming back. Because to me, he's just, again, drained. And Good villain he just just He just yeah. needs something that sort of like re-energizes his battery and brings him back. It, like you can't figure out what the fuck it is in that right. movie at all. But I actually really like that interpretation. Because I like this movie having a definitive ending.
2: Exactly. Well, that's it. Movie's over. Which then brings us to that final point of what do you think? How do you like it? I think it's pretty obvious that I
1: love this movie. Mm. I think the acting is good all around, full of characters that I like. I think that this movie uses Robert England really well. They don't overuse him. And Robert Englund's a wonderful actor, and I love him in other movies where he's not Freddy Krueger. I think Freddy Krueger's better in small doses. Mm. This movie really works for me. I love the set pieces. I really like the way the script is just jam-packed with different ideas, things that Nancy has learned, things that Gordon learns, things that Freddy learns, things that we learn about Freddy, all these different ways that these characters bring their knowledge together. And everything, it's like Piranha. It's like the Mm -hmm. big compliment I gave Piranha everything makes sense. Yeah, But I think the final point is the big point I wanted to make. And this is something I haven't mentioned yet in the episode. I remembered this movie really wrong. I've always loved this movie, but I realized that when I've described it to people, I've used three points. That the characters all get superpowers. The line, in my dreams, I'm beautiful and bad. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we haven't talked about. The song at the end, which is a heavy metal... Hairband from the 80s. Hairband screaming ballad song called dream warriors mm-hmm. and it's awesome it's literally like listening to metallica van halen yeah. like so, you know twisted sister yep
2: yeah. it's definitely in that vein
1: you can picture giant hair and guitars mm-hmm. and flames shooting from and everywhere. studded outfits where their nipples are mm-hmm. out that kind of thing the reason that this is all important i remembered this as being something it's not campy i remembered this movie as being a joke of itself. And I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad I revisited this because I was totally wrong. This is a great haunted house movie. And I'm sorry, this is my moment. Mm -hmm. This is my moment where I'm going to look at you and say, people are going to be mad at me about this. The
2: shit that people think is campy, I don't think it's campy at all. A lot of the campy stuff works. Even Jennifer's death, though, I'll take the piss out of it, works.
1: And I'll have fun with the doll that Kristen was holding. Of course. It's supposed to be a little girl. But it
2: all comes together, even though... The effects might not look so good so many years later, even though this plot point was a little weird. When you take it as the whole, this movie gels perfectly.
1: And you know what? These kids deserve an 80s rock theme song. Oh, hell yeah. Because I'm rooting for them in this movie. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful I get to watch a Freddy Krueger movie where I'm not not voting for him. Right. I don't want to vote for the villain. Mm -hmm. Not because I don't like good villains, but because... That's That's not the point. That's not the point. Yeah. I want a story with a great villain who I hate Mm -hmm. and I want heroes that I want to win. And you know what? These characters have been through so much shit Mm -hmm. that they deserve their fucking dream powers and they deserve their 80s hair metal song. That is their fucking triumphant fight Mm -hmm. against Freddy Krueger and the songs about them, not about him. I Although Robert that. England
2: does show up in the music video as Freddy, which I thought was a nice touch. Oh no, that's fucking that's great! It's good for him to do that. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun.
1: <laughs> but it just ties together. This song ties together everything I love mm-hmm. about this movie. Yeah. Yes, it's big. It's '80s. It's fucking wild and crazy, but it knows who it's about, and it's a ton of fun. But not in a campy way. It knows what it is. I fucking love this movie. I'm so glad.
2: This is the moment where we usually do a shout-out at the end of the show, and I could sit here and shout-out to Heather Langenkamp, who I love with all my heart, or many of the other people who are in this film who I appreciate and admire, but I think we have something better planned.
1: Uh, yes, we do. Leo had to practically wake me up. I almost <laughs> fainted after not breathing during that last monologue.
2: He went into his own dream coma.
1: <laughs> uh, it's just me and that beautiful nurse. <laughs> holding a holding a VHS copy of Dream Warriors. I wonder what
2: she's doing now. I'll look her up for you.
1: Oh, please tell me she's single. Anyway, <laughs> we want to let everyone know that we're going to be on one of our friend shows. We're going to be on the excellent show, A Cut Above, one of the most thoughtful, interesting, and fun horror review shows that are out there. For those of you who know this, because I've brought this up before, I'm really not into horror review shows. I won't knock on anybody, but there's just specific reasons they're not for me. A Cut Above is 100% for me. This is a great show, so I would check that out. But we're going to be on their show, and we're going to be covering the
2: classic movie to (laughs) absolutely no one, Rock and Roll Nightmare. If you've never seen Rock and Roll Nightmare... You probably would want to do that before you hear the show, just so you know what the fuck we're talking about, because I'm excited beyond reason to do this show, and I don't know that talking about it is going to do it justice. For full
1: disclosure, Rock and Roll Nightmare was actually on our list. Yes. We were going to do it back in June or July. We had to move that episode, and then we decided, you know what we want to do? We want to go on the smartest show that we know and bring the dumbest movie that we know. And by the time this comes out, it may already be out— but Keep we'll be doing Rock and Roll Nightmare with a cut above.
2: To Stephen's point, they are so put together and so thoughtful and such an intelligent show that it's an absolute delight to bring them a bunch of cheesy shit that we can laugh at and have a good time with and see how well they do with it. Because we love them enough to want to share our love for this shit with them.
1: A cut above, uh, keep an eye out for that episode. And just thank you to everybody that reached out to us about Friday the 13th. People really loved that episode. And we got a lot of love for Bloody Birthday, too. I love that
2: you guys are loving these shows, that you're taking the time to tell us you're loving them. That helps us keep moving forward. Knowing that you love it so much gives us that passion to say... We're not in it just for us. There's other people who are really enjoying it too and we want to bring this to you more and have more fun with it. So really grateful for all of you reaching out and taking the time to tell us.
1: So thank you very much and we will catch you next week. We're covering Bubba Hotep.
2: Bubba Hotep.
1: A movie that Leo and I love with all of our fucking hearts. Bowing down
2: to Groovy Bruce.
1: Oh, and our first Bruce Campbell movie. Also. All right, we'll see you then. Bye.